please stand for the reading of the gospel. We read from Luke's gospel, chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. One Sabbath day when Jesus went into the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat bread, they were watching him closely. Right in front of him was a man who was suffering from swelling of his body. Jesus addressed the legal experts and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So he took hold of the man, healed him, and let him go. He said to them, Which of you, if your son or an ox would fall into a well on the Sabbath day, would not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. When he noticed how they were selecting the places of honor, he told the invited guests a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not recline in the place of honor, or perhaps someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. The one who invited both of you may come and tell you, give this man your place. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he will tell you, friend, move up to a higher place. Then you will have honor in the presence of all who are reclining at the table with you. Yes, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the one who had invited him, When you make a dinner or supper, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, so that perhaps they may also return the favor and pay you back. But when you make a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. You will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. Certainly you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Dear fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who exalts the humble. You might think that a theme like I chose for this sermon, you don't understand, might be a little obnoxious and maybe a little condescending. But I thought of it as I was reminiscing about my teenage years. You remember your teenage years when you were the smartest person you knew? And at the same time, your parents just didn't understand how smart you were, how you knew so much better than them? My parents just didn't understand why I had to play my music so loud. They didn't understand why I just had to. It was essential for me to stay up late and wake up even later. They didn't understand that these hands were not made to do dishes and take out the garbage, but to play video games and throw baseballs. They didn't understand. Parents never seemed to understand. Today, Jesus shows us that quite often we don't really understand our God. So, there's a lot of things going on in this short little, relatively short little text. And there's more here than meets the eye. This text is not really about showing mercy to those who are ill or sick. It's not really about where you take your seat at a wedding reception. It's not really about who you should invite to a party. It's not really about if you humble yourself, eventually you will be exalted. And if you are exalting yourself, well, then you're eventually going to be humbled. It's not really about that. There's so much more going on here. And there are two tip-offs, interpretive tip-offs that tell us that. Uh, first of all, there's, uh, Jesus performs a miracle. And if you have studied the miracles in the New Testament, you know that the miracles are never about the miracle. 
They are always signs that point to something else, to something bigger. So that's our first tip-off. Also, Jesus tells a parable. Luke says explicitly, this is a parable. A parable is not about the parable either. A parable is an earthly story that teaches a heavenly truth. But before we get to the parable, we have to understand the context. And the context is a dinner party thrown by the Pharisees. Now, this Pharisee was not just being nice to Jesus by inviting him. Instead, they were trying to do what we would call today entrapment. And they baited their trap with a sick man, a man who had a buildup of fluid. In, in other translations, it used to be called dropsy. And apparently they sat this man right in front of Jesus, and they were waiting and watching very closely. What's he going to do? It's the Sabbath day. He knows that full well. He knows that the Lord has commanded us not to do any work on the Sabbath. What's he going to do? Will he heal this man as Jesus had done before? Well, Jesus knows exactly what's on their mind, and so he exposes their trap. He says, what do you think? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? No, they don't answer him. Right? They don't answer him, which is pretty telling. So Jesus answers his own question, and he takes a man, heals him, and then sends him on his way. Trap busted. Now, why did Jesus throw this allegedly Sabbath law-breaking miracle right in the faces of the Pharisees? I mean, the man had dropsy. Sure, he was sick, but... It's not as bad as if he had fallen into a well. He, he, he wasn't in mortal danger that day. Jesus could have just waited until the next day to heal this man. Why did Jesus get right up in their faces and break allegedly break the Sabbath law right in front of them? It was because the Pharisees didn't understand God. They didn't understand God's heart, especially as it relates to the third commandment, to the Sabbath day. The Pharisees viewed, Jesus, or viewed God as a tyrant, a slave driver, who gave us his commandments just so that we could do them and so that we could earn his favor and appease his wrath. That's how the Pharisees viewed the Sabbath day. That's how they viewed the commandment. They thought that by doing nothing on the Sabbath day, they were actually earning God's favor, earning themselves a place in heaven. They didn't understand what the Sabbath day was all about. They didn't understand that God gave the Sabbath day not for his own benefit, but for theirs. So that they could take a day to physically rest. And with the promise, with the assurance that they wouldn't starve if they just took a day off of work. He gave them the day so that they would rest in the word of God, where they would find peace of forgiveness and the joy of hope, of the hope of everlasting life. He gave them that day so that they would sit down and consider how God had promised to send a Messiah who would bring them eternal rest, an eternal Sabbath. But the Pharisees didn't get it. They didn't understand that the Sabbath day reveals God's beating heart for sinners, that he wants to give us his mercy, not establish this day with its rigid rules as a day for us to offer him sacrifice. Do we understand God's heart any better than those Pharisees did? especially as it relates to the third commandment? I think we don't sometimes. And maybe that's partially the fault of pastors. You especially see it in confirmation class. Now, whether it's explicit or just implicit, there's the expectation that when you're in seventh and eighth grade, you're attending confirmation class, you better be in worship on Sunday too, because 
whether it's spoken or not, there's this thought, this idea that if you don't attend worship, well, you're not going to be confirmed. And true enough, in the end, if you're never coming to worship, you will not be confirmed. But if that's the framework that we place in young people's minds about why we have to come to worship, it's just something we have to do in order to make God happy so that we can get confirmed and finally be done with it all, is it any surprise that for 7th and 8th grade 7th and 8th graders, they show up every Sunday until they're confirmed, and then what happens? Far too often. You never see them again. Because we've cultivated in their minds a pharisaical understanding of what this day is all about, why we come here for worship. We turn it into a, a, a task to be done, a job to be carried out, instead of the proper understanding of the Sabbath day where we come here for rest. We don't come here to serve God but to be served by Him. There's kind of that dual meaning of divine worship or the divine service. Certainly we do serve the divine. We do worship the divine, but that's only second. That only comes after God has served us. That's the thought that we need to cultivate in our minds regarding worship. That this is for our good. This is not for us to serve God. This is for God to come to us and serve Him. If you have a Pharisaical understanding, though, you'll just think of worship as a burden. You'll think of coming to communion as something you have to do, just to tick off the box to make God happy with you. And if you have that idea, it's no wonder that it seems like such a burden to come here to church, that it just screws up your weekend, that it gets, just gets in the way. If you view God as a taskmaster, of course that's the way you're going to think of it. Just a dreary duty that we have to carry out to make God happy with us. But over and over again, Jesus makes it so clear. It's not what this is about. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. This is a day to rest in the forgiveness that Jesus has won for you. A day in which the Lord invites you to come here so that he can bestow on you his mercy not demand some additional sacrifice from you. The Pharisees didn't get it. They didn't get, they didn't understand God's beating heart. And I wonder if we always do, because we tend to read Scripture through the lens of the law, don't we? That it's about us. It's where God tells us what we are to be doing. And if we read this section that way, we're going to have a lot of problems with this parable that Jesus tells, this parable about the guests at the wedding banquet. It's going to be almost impossible for us to properly understand it. Because again, it's not really about where you should sit at a wedding banquet. Remember the theme for today? Jesus leads us down the rabbit hole to show us how, how radically different things work in God's kingdom than they do in our world. Radically different things work that we don't take the seat of highest honor because we, don't, we know we don't deserve it. Um, this parable can't be about seats at a wedding banquet, right? Why not? Well, first of all, if you go to a wedding reception and you intentionally take the, the seat of lowest honor fully expecting that eventually you're going to be upgraded. You'll be upgraded to first class. Is that really humility? Wouldn't we just call that hypocrisy? And if Jesus is teaching us here, if the spiritual truth we're supposed to take out of this parable is that Jesus is saying, just be humble now, 
Be humble now, and God will eventually exalt you to a place in heaven. Well, that would be work righteousness, wouldn't it? If our place at heaven's banquet depends on our humility now, then there is something for us to earn. This cannot be about taking seats at a wedding banquet. It's about how we don't understand God's grace. How the Pharisees did not understand God's grace. They thought in terms of merit and works when God wanted them to think in terms of grace. Just think about it this way, that in the parable, the person who does take the seat of humility, does he earn the right to be exalted to a place of honor? No. In fact, he doesn't even ask for it. It's just a gift of God's grace. And so the point Jesus is making is that the way things work in God's kingdom is radically different from this world. In this world, the exalted, those who exalt themselves are exalted, and those who are humble are further humbled by our society. In God's kingdom, it's just the opposite. The exalted are brought to their knees, and the humble are raised up. And there are all these different examples throughout Scripture that we could use, right? How how God chose the nation of Israel, even though she was the smallest, the, the least nation on earth, but God chose her and exalted her to be his chosen people. You think of Mary's Magnificat, where she says, you have filled the hungry with good things, but the rich, you've sent them away empty. But I think even right here in this story, we see how God's grace works, don't we? So this man with dropsy was there as bait to try to get Jesus to openly break the Sabbath law, at least in their minds, in front of many witnesses. Now, there's no way in a normal party, if it was just the Pharisees, they would have invited this man to sit at their table because he was ceremonially unclean. They couldn't sit with him, at least according to their perception. So, they, you can picture it, they would have chosen the seats as far away from this filthy guy as they could. Not Jesus, though. Jesus sits right next to this guy. There's another thing about this affliction. In those days, it was often associated with sexual immorality, that he had been unfaithful in some way sexually. They almost regarded it as an STD. Now, I don't know about you, I, I don't think I'd really want to invite someone who's contagious with monkeypox to my dinner table and sit right next to him. But Jesus did that, something similar to that. And then... Without even being asked, Jesus healed him. He took this man who, who was humbled, who, who was considered ceremonially unclean, who was certainly well aware of his sinfulness, and Jesus raised him up by curing him of this stigmatized malady and, related to that, sending away his sins, forgiving them. And that's what the Pharisees did not understand about grace. Do we have a better understanding of grace than they do? God's grace is something that can't be earned. It can only be given. It is not received by those who think they deserve it, but by those who know that they do not. Now, I don't think we have issues with dinner party etiquette too often among us, but what about when we come through those doors? Do we in our own minds, expect that we deserve the place of highest honor because of our spectacular attendance record or because we 
have been so generous with our offerings or because we have been so selfless in our service? Do we picture in our minds that if there were a seating chart in here, that we would well deserve the place of highest honor because of what we have done? That God can't help but choose us and exalt us because of how we have served Him. If that's the way we think of it, then we really don't understand. Then we have everything upside down. We need to take another trip through the rabbit hole with Jesus to see that that's not how God works. That God doesn't give His grace to those who imagine they deserve it, but to those who know that they do not. Using the example I used before, God would much rather give His grace to the person who kind of stays outside those doors and wonders, I, I don't think I'm worthy to go in there. I don't deserve to be in God's house to hear his word. Look at what I've done. God gives his grace not to those who boast of their generous offerings, but to those who in humility must beat their chest like that tax collector and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, because that's really the only thing I bring into this situation. The only thing I can offer to God are my sins. If we understood grace, we would understand that God doesn't give it to those who deserve it, but to those who do not. That grace is not earned, it cannot be earned, it can only be given. And that's because God only gives grace, he only raises up humble sinners for Jesus' sake. You know Jesus, how though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. You know how he rightfully earned the place of highest honor at God's table, but he gave it up for our sake. He came to live the the most humble life that has ever been lived, where he didn't own a home, and his clothing was ripped off of him as he was nailed to a tree. But that after Jesus humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross, to pay for our sins, our pride, our boasting, our self-exaltation, God exalted him to the highest place so that at the name of Jesus every knee may bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's only for Jesus' sake that we could ever dream of ever being exalted. The only rightful place for us to be in this church, in God's kingdom, is to race for the seat of of lowest honor, of deepest humility because we are painfully aware of our sins. And then, after we confess our sins, God takes no greater joy than to raise you up and to say, you are my dear forgiven child. Come up here and take a place of honor at my heavenly banquet. See, we don't think the way God thinks. We think according to the law and God thinks according to the gospel. We think about merits and what we deserve and and God thinks in terms of grace and giving people what they don't deserve. Which leads us to the third act of this little dinner party. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you make a dinner or a supper, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors so that perhaps they may also return the favor and pay you back. But when you make a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Now, at first glance, you'd think, okay, Jesus is kind of oddly instituting a new rule about who you should invite to your dinner parties. But that wouldn't make any sense. The Pharisees already were thinking in terms of good works. Jesus didn't need to teach them about more good works. He had to teach them about how badly they misunderstood God 
and his kingdom. I think here Jesus is teaching them and he's teaching us about God's greatest fear. Did you know that God is afraid? He's afraid of payback. He's afraid of people to whom he has given his free gifts of grace and forgiveness and salvation of trying to pay him back. We can't, can we? But we often think of it in those terms, don't we? Okay, maybe we have it through our thick skulls that here in worship is where God comes to us to serve us with his forgiveness, to strengthen our faith, and increase our hope for the life that is to come. But when I walk out those doors now, it's really on me. Now I have to really work the other 167 hours of the week to make God happy with me, to earn the grace that he has given me right here. But if that's the way we think, it's no wonder that we view the Christian life as such a burden. Instead of viewing the laws of God, the commandments that he's given us, as the path of true freedom, as James said, we view them as a burden that takes all the fun out of life. It's no wonder if we think that grace must be earned, that we find living as a Christian to be very difficult. But the point of being here is not for you to then go out there and and earn it, and earn the gifts, because then it wouldn't be grace anymore, would it? Now just think about how grace permeates our services. So, So you step up here to the communion table, you receive Jesus' body and blood and the forgiveness of sins, and and then how are you dismissed? With a, a slap on the butt? Now go out, go out there and be a better Christian. No. No. Go in peace, for your sins are forgiven. Or think about how we're dismissed from worship. Go, get out there. Go fix the problems that are in the world. Go feed the poor. Go throw a dinner party for the crippled. Go make the world a better place. Absolutely not. We go with the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And never does God say, now you owe me in return. This is very comforting that God is afraid of being paid back. Because honestly, we can't. How do we pay him back? How would we even start to try to pay him back? And that means you don't have to feel guilty if you can't pay God back because he doesn't want it anyway. It means that if you come through those doors every week and and you really feel weighed down by your sin and you think, all I have to bring to this party is my fears and my worries and my anxieties and my sins and my guilt and my shame, that's okay. That's just how God wants it to be. Because he wants to Find those of you, those of us who are, have fallen into the bottom of the well during our lives, through our sins, and he wants to raise us up out of sheer grace. It's probably true that most parents don't understand most teenagers' logic because their logic is often illogical, but it's even more true that we do not understand our God. We don't understand his heart especially as it relates to the third commandment, that he invites us to come here to give us his mercy, not demand a sacrifice from us. We don't understand his grace, that he only gives his gifts to people who know they don't deserve it. We don't understand what he's afraid of, that he doesn't want us to try to pay him back because he knows that we cannot. Now, 
I'm not saying that you can or should understand God. I don't think we can completely understand God or understand grace, but I do hope you understand that God is even better than you ever imagined. Amen.